For this episode of Metaphors Be With You, we'll be talking about George Lucas's final Star Wars movie, the film that essentially put the franchise in park. Hi, I'm Rob Hyard of Chipperish Media, and this is a podcast about symbolism and allegory in Star Wars. The movies, the TV shows, the books, and everything else. Except during season three, when instead I'm going to be going through each movie to find the metaphors hidden in each one. First of all, here's a statement I don't usually hear about Star Wars movies. The book is better. In all seriousness, the official novelization of Revenge of the Sith, written by Matthew Stover, is terrific, and does a wonderful job of filling out basically everyone's characterizations and motivations. Honestly, if you only ever read one Star Wars novel, I would recommend it be this one. Alright, let's get started. The movie begins in the space over Coruscant, and some clever cinematography shows us that the first edge of the planet we can see is currently experiencing either sunrise or sunset. I'm going to go with Sunset, though, because the last we saw of this planet in Attack of the Clones, it was Twilight, which felt to me like a reflection of the State of the Republic, and this is the movie that will definitely see Nightfall. Immediately, we can see that this battle is huge, with a lot going on, suggesting the all-consuming nature of the war that's raged across the galaxy. But then we see two Jedi starfighters flying in perfect synchronization, because this is our heroes at the height of their powers and their friendship. But as much as I feel like Obi-Wan has to be the overall protagonist of the prequels, Revenge of the Sith is very much Anakin's story which is why we're going to spend a lot of time in Act 1 establishing his capabilities and heroism. In the piloting sequence, we'll do that in a few ways. First, he gives us the Han Solo line from A New Hope. This is where the fun begins, aligning him with a hero we already know and love. We also, of course, show him being a spectacularly capable pilot, even when compared to his fellow Jedi, by rescuing Obi-Wan and then snap-rolling over to destroy the shields just in time to let them aboard Grievous's ship. Anakin will literally carry Obi-Wan out of the fight with Count Dooku, but he basically carries him in, too. But the most powerful indicator of Anakin's heroism is also the one that foreshadows his fall. When the clone pilots start dying to keep the enemy away from him and Obi-Wan, Anakin wants to go back and help. His compassion is leading him to want to forego the bigger picture, which is something we'll find out he has a real problem with, and which we also saw illustrated in Episode 2 when Padme fell off the clone transport. Anakin's streak of heroism gets a hell of a combo breaker, though, when he executes the helpless Count Dooku, and with Dooku's own red lightsaber. More foreshadowing. We see his internal turmoil play out as the ship's gravity gets messed up and Anakin's world literally turns sideways. But because we're in Act 1 still, he handles all this chaos with aplomb, like a model Jedi. He counsels patience to Obi-Wan when they're stuck in the ray shield trap. He carries off his half of the plan against Grievous perfectly, and successfully pilots half of a spaceship to a safe landing. He then happily banters with his best friend before he finally gets to see his secret wife and oh shit. Say what you will about Hayden Christensen's performance as Anakin Skywalker. I think he does a great job in the scene where Padme tells him she's pregnant. It's this marvelous mixture of fear and uncertainty and maybe some actual joy, and also I know I need to keep me happy for her sake. For her part, Padme is clearly super concerned about how he will react, but is apparently completely content after a time lapse, and is happily talking about having the baby in the lake country on Naboo, presumably at least in part because it's the place where she and Anakin fell in love. She's also in a good enough mood to crush him in their battle of wits like an elephant stomping on a rotten mango, which ends when she tells him that love has blinded him. This exchange does two things. It shows us that Anakin is still, bless him, kind of a dumbass, and it tells us exactly what the central narrative conflict of the movie will be, Anakin and his blind obsession with her. Anakin then has his fateful dream, which frankly seems like the worst thing about being Force-sensitive. When you have a bad feeling about something, it's almost certainly a real thing that you should be genuinely worried about, as evidenced by the dreams he was having about his mother in the last movie. And Anakin, still in the role of the good Jedi, goes to Yoda with his troubles. Unfortunately, this is the moment when Yoda, Avatar of the Jedi Order as a whole, gives Anakin some truly shitty advice. 
I plugged this once before, but Pop Culture Detective Agency's The Case Against the Jedi Order has an excellent breakdown of this scene in particular and how the Jedi are yet another version of toxic masculinity and its insistence on not having feelings about things. There's a link in the show notes. This scene is also one of the moments in the prequel trilogy that tricked me at first. It's very easy to watch these three movies and think that the Jedi are just good and noble and pure, and what a tragedy that the Order gets destroyed. And to be clear, the death of all those individuals is absolutely a tragedy. But as I've been pointing out, the Jedi have definitely lost their way at this point in galactic history. So in my first several viewings of Revenge of the Sith, I looked at this scene with the blinds casting the film noir-esque horizontal shadows across Anakin's face as strictly foreshadowing Anakin's fall to darkness. But Yoda is engulfed in these same shadows as he gives Anakin terrible advice that amounts to shaming him for having feelings. The Jedi Order, in the voice of its great and wise leader, has taken its first step into a larger world of failing Anakin. This also begins a sequence in the movie where basically everyone Anakin talks to winds up giving him a little push on his way to the dark side. We go back and forth with Palpatine, telling him that he's awesome and the only trustworthy Jedi in BT dubs. Did you know the dark side lets you stop people from dying? Well, the Jedi Council tells him, your friend the Chancellor sucks and you aren't cool enough to sit at the big table with us, but you should also spy on your friend and tell us what he does. And even Padme is wondering out loud if the Republic might be the bad guys in the war and asks him to try to influence Palpatine. And frankly, this is all too much for our dumbass rhinoceros Anakin. He doesn't understand subtlety, so subtlety feels like deception to him. And since Palpatine is the only one not asking him to do anything subtle, he feels pushed toward Palpatine. The irony, of course, is that Palpatine is playing the subtlest game of all, but he's not letting Anakin in on it, so he wins. I'm going to pause here and note a realization that I had recently that I would not have had if it wasn't really cold outside, motivating me to wear my hood up. Both the Jedi and Sith famously wear hooded cloaks, and we spend a lot of time in fiction on hoods as things that disguise your identity. But the most immediately noticeable thing about wearing a hood is that it completely kills your peripheral vision. Put another way, it acts as a set of blinders. And as Palpatine tells us, the Jedi and Sith are alike in almost every way, including that they both tend to focus on one thing and ignore everything else. We now return you to the discussion of how Anakin is kind of an idiot. Anakin's unsophistication is important, because central to his fall is the idea that just knowing what the Sith know weakens your morality. And this is an idea shared by the Abrahamic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, in their story of Adam and Eve. I've always found this idea weird and troubling, because to my secular way of thinking, knowledge is pretty much just good, and institutions that are afraid of you knowing something feel suspicious to me. On the other hand, there are things that we don't tell young children, generally because we think it'd be too upsetting for them to know. And my understanding is that's the intent in the Adam and Eve story. Humans are children to God, so God wants to shield them from knowledge. Though, if he really wanted to shield them, he presumably would have put a fence or something around this tree. So Palpatine is the serpent, begging Anakin to taste the apple of his Sith knowledge. Also, we give apples to teachers, whose job is to impart knowledge. And apples are red, like Sith lightsabers. It's all one big circle, like a serpent eating its own apple tail. The previous paragraph is the writing equivalent of feeling cute might delete later. Anyway, once Anakin has been dubbed Darth Vader... Sidious sends him to go murder children until he's earned enough evil experience points to level up as a Sith. This is the part that just seems banana pants to me, because we've been talking about Palpatine teaching Anakin and, Use my knowledge, I beg you. And all Anakin has done is murder children when he starts telling Padme about his new powers. He then murders some rich people and his eyes have turned yellow, so the movie is telling us that all this murder is doing something to him. But I'm pretty sure he's not any more powerful. Let me explain why. Consider that Anakin's fight with Obi-Wan is by far the longest one-on-one -on -one fight of the franchise's history, and ignore the extra-textual fact that this was probably Lucas wanted to end his tenure in the galaxy with a great duel. The battle can only go on so long because the combatants are extremely evenly matched. It makes sense, of course. Anakin learned everything from Obi-Wan, they know each other's fighting styles intimately, and can anticipate each other brilliantly. Remember, they're synchronized flying at the beginning. 
But the battle only ends when one of them gains a decisive advantage that's external to both of them, the much-mocked high ground. The narrative has been telling us all along that Anakin is remarkable, a prodigy, the chosen one. With the addition of new powers, Obi-Wan shouldn't stand a chance in a straight-up duel, should he? But he does, because Anakin hasn't gained power from his mass-murdering escapades. He's gained the euphoric thrill of liberation. He's basically a kid playing Grand Theft Auto, given a playground where all the rules he's ever had to follow just don't apply anymore. He's confused institutions losing power over him with gaining power himself. So why does Palpatine send Anakin to do these things if they won't result in a more powerful apprentice? My read is that it's a way to bind Anakin to him. Once Anakin has committed these atrocities, no one else will ever take him back. So Darth Vader is stuck with Darth Sidious as the only one in the galaxy who understands him, forever. But let's back up a bit and talk more about how the fall happens. First, I love the bit that happens at the, if you'll forgive the term, space opera. It's neat to see the Star Wars 1%, including a cameo by George Lucas himself. And there's a moment when there's a close shot on Anakin and Palpatine's heads, with the performance in the background between them. As Palpatine tells Anakin about the Sith's amazing healthcare benefits, the swimming creatures in the performance look like some kind of evil lightning or magic passing between the two characters in the foreground. It's beautifully constructed to show evil sort of transmitting itself between these two. Another interesting bit of scene setting is Palpatine's office. It's obviously noteworthy that a lot of it is decorated in the kind of rich red that the Sith seem to like. Side thought, what if it's not a Sith thing? What if the whole business with red is just that it's Palpatine's favorite color? Anyway, the room of the office that we're in when Anakin finds out that Palpatine is a Sith Lord is decorated with this amazing bas-relief on the wall. I haven't been able to find a really good close-up of the thing online, but I included a link in the show notes to what I could find. It seems to be an image of several Jedi-type folks fighting some other people who may be allied with some big scary monsters. It definitely skews more straight-up fantasy than what we're used to seeing in Star Wars, and it lends the scene with Palpatine's revelation some ominous magic, since he doesn't actually do anything all that scary in that scene, except talk. By contrast, Palpatine is pretty scary when Mace Windu and friends come to arrest him. Now, to be clear, Mace basically is the Jedi Order here, and all the good and bad that that implies. He is calm in the face of death as three of his colleagues are cut down in seconds, but so arrogant and sure of himself that he refuses Anakin's help and doesn't even give the Chancellor a chance to relinquish his political powers before saying he's under arrest for... shrug emoji. He's also the Jedi Order in the sense of being the polar opposite of his Sith opponent, who snarls like an animal and hurls lightning around, which may simply blocks and reflects per Jedi principle. Except that he also decides to kill a technically unarmed prisoner, which Anakin has helpfully illustrated earlier is not how Jedi are supposed to behave. And I've talked about this before, but the situation amounts to an extraordinary amount of pressure on poor Anakin. He's got the Jedi versus Sith conflict that his training tells him should push him toward Mace. But on an interpersonal level, Palpatine has literally always been nicer to him than Window, even when he was a little boy. Throw in his visions of Padme dying and the fact that his marriage to her has to be a secret from the Jedi, and it's not really surprising that when it comes down to having to decide between them right now, as Palpatine's face is melting off, he makes a terrible decision. Side note, after two movies of healthy, fit Sith, we're going to end this one with both Sith Lords having completely ruined bodies. It's almost as if the bodily integrity as proxy for morality theme was suspended, and then Lucas suddenly remembered it, and like Wiley Coyote only falling off the cliff when he looks down, the laws of the Star Wars galaxy suddenly snap back into force. So Palpatine sends Anakin to the Jedi Temple to do what must be done, which is like a 9.8 on the euphemism Richter scale. But in the equivalent Jedi planning scene, Obi-Wan immediately begs Yoda, send me to kill the Emperor. This is a pretty drastic escalation in rhetoric, even compared to the Jedi earlier in the film, when they talked about destroying General Grievous. But Yoda and Obi-Wan, as possibly the last Jedi in the galaxy, don't really have the luxury of talking around the issues. So Obi-Wan secretly hitches a ride to Mustafar, which is pretty obviously a stand-in for hell. But when he steps off the ship, he's framed in this heavenly white light, the angel sent to struggle with his fallen brother. Except, 
When he and Anakin are circling around each other and the littlest Sith Lord says he can see through the lies of the Jedi, he's moving toward that white light as Obi-Wan moves away. Shortly after that, Obi-Wan makes the absurdly self-defeating claim that only a Sith deals in absolutes, and we can see that this is a true tragedy in that no one is actually right here. I mean, Anakin is less right, but still. So the fight begins, and it's obviously significant that this is the one time in the history of the film franchise where two characters fight using the same color lightsaber. The matching blades serve as a continual reminder throughout this long-ass duel that these aren't just enemies. In some ways, the two halves of the same person, that Jedi hero who flew so perfectly in sync in the opening scene. Another striking feature of the duel is the recurring element of balance. A lot of this fight is spent on small platforms hovering above lava. So in all this frenetic combat, the characters have to fight to keep their balance over and over. Similarly, we see a bunch of machinery tip over and fall, and it all adds up to this wonderful visual reinforcement of the fact that what we're supposedly fighting for is the balance of the Force. On the same theme, as the final phase of the duel begins, Anakin makes an impressive leap over Obi-Wan's head, but nearly falls off the platform in the process. He is literally unbalanced right now, but apparently doesn't realize it, and that foreshadows how his overconfidence will lose in this battle rather decisively. Alright, I think that's everything I wanted to say about Anakin. Let's move on to some other stuff. When Order 66 happens, it's a bit of a shock, even though it's all pretty well foreshadowed, what with the Sith having arranged for the clone army and the clones looking like stormtroopers. But one way the movie compounds that shock is by having it come right after Commander Cody returns Obi-Wan's lightsaber to him with a friendly little joke. The clone's betrayal is instant and complete, and that fascinates me to no end. The Jedi, after all, seem to be just a step or two shy of being mind readers, with their abilities to sense conflict and suffering in others, and presumably they never sensed any kind of deception or divided loyalties from the clones until the moment it happens. Note that Yoda does sense it when his two clones, having been given the order, sneak up on him with the intent to murder. So that kind of intent would have been clear had it existed. Another sidebar. Really, Palpatine? Two clones to take out Yoda? The serenest motherfucker in the whole order? So it seems very much like the plan to betray the Jedi just didn't exist for the clones until the magic words Execute Order 66 were spoken, and apparently specifically by Palpatine, since we see him communicating with several clone commanders personally. So maybe the magic words are essentially a mind wipe, and the clones who hear them are just no longer the decent guys they were beforehand? Unfortunately not, because Cody is the only one of Obi-Wan's clones who speaks with Palpatine. Some clones in the big montage of murder just have to nod at each other. So the plan definitely existed, the clones seemingly knew about it, and were still able to have seemingly genuine friendships with the magically empathic targets of the conspiracy. I find this absolutely chilling, as well as being an interesting warping of the nature versus tech theme, since these human beings act so much like droids in this respect. Another warping of that theme that I appreciate is the battle on the Wookiee homeworld of Kashyyyk. To no one's surprise, Wookiee tech is very organic looking, with dragonfly looking vehicles and weapons that seem to be made of wood. But a lot of the droid forces they're fighting look pretty animalistic too, with big bug eyes and legs and such. It all serves to underscore a theme in this movie of the blurring of the lines between good and evil. But for a bright, bold, unmissable moral line on the sand, you can't really top the Yoda-Sidious duel. This sequence is basically what I was hoping for but didn't get from Yoda's battle with Count Dooku. A big, flashy fight between wizards. I love this bit. At the beginning of the battle, we establish some stakes. First, the Royal Guards are utterly irrelevant in this Clash of Titans, and Yoda proves it by defeating both with a wave of his tiny little hand. Second, Darth Sidious has the serious Force Lightning, not like the wimpy stuff that Dooku threw for Yoda to catch. Finally, and this is arguably the most important part, escape is a viable option for Sidious. We're on a planet that is largely loyal to him personally, and Yoda is the head of an organization that just had its body cut out from under it. If Sidious can just get away, he can throw the resources of his new empire at killing Yoda. Yet another side note before I get too deep into analyzing this fight. You may have noticed that despite losing his lightsaber in the fight with Mace Windu, Sidious is once again armed with a lightsaber here. 
I really appreciate that the Clone Wars cartoon establishes, in what I believe is the only scene where we see Darth Sidious fight, that he fights with a pair of identical red lightsabers. Brilliant. Anyway, so we have the big battle between our avatars of the light and the dark, and it's suitably flashy and epic, except that both combatants get knocked ass over tea kettle in these really undignified ways. Sidious in particular gets knocked backward over a couch in a moment that's practically slapstick. But after the slapstick is done, the fight moves into the deserted senate chamber, and I love this moment. The great clash of good and evil will be fought on a stage in front of a vast audience of nobody. This is, without a doubt, the single most important thing happening in the galaxy at this moment, and there's no one to see it. The vast, empty amphitheater makes this point much more eloquently than if they'd remained fighting and alone in a relatively small office. Even better to me is the point when Sidious starts using the Force to throw the Senator's pods down at Yoda, because he's literally throwing broken pieces of democracy at his enemy. To be honest, this is probably the single sequence that inspired me the most to do this podcast, and it was a strong contender for my favorite part of the film. But the final beat of this battle is also its thesis statement. Yoda and Sidious are just a few feet away from each other, with the Sith Lord just pouring lightning into the Jedi Master. They're deadlocked for a while, but then Yoda clearly wins. He pushes the lightning back at Sidious, and there's a small explosion that knocks them both off their feet. But then they're separated, and Sidious reverts back to his fallback strategy of just escaping. And we've now had the decisive contest between the most powerful champions of the light and the dark, and the light simply won. That's the thesis statement of this sequence. The dark side really isn't stronger, just quicker and easier. Moving on to the roughly 50 epilogues this movie has, the birth of the twins and the rebirth of Darth Vader are obviously meant to be parallel scenes, where we alternate shots between the two medical chambers, which have conveniently opposite color schemes, sometimes mirroring the action of the bits we just watched. Visually, we're drawing a big connecting line between these events, which invites the viewer to think about the thematic connections between them. Both involve death and life, in that Vader should have died but is being preserved, while Padme is dying but new life is coming into the world. Both are the results of Anakin's failures, and both of the principal characters in these scenes are thinking about the other as they happen. I really appreciate the moment where we see Vader's helmet lenses move in to cover Anakin's eyes. Not only does this close the circuit in the line from Return of the Jedi about wanting to look at Luke with his own eyes, but it also shows us that Darth Vader, for the rest of his life, will be looking at the world through Sith-colored glasses. As we leave Darth Vader, we also throw a little homage toward Frankenstein as the monster awkwardly struggles to his feet in his new patchwork body. And speaking of cyborg monsters, let's spend some time with General Grievous. I talked some about him in episode 6, but something I didn't mention was how delightfully animalistic some of his movements are. He's obviously very technological, but his movements anytime he's on all fours, or all sixes, are like gross bug movements, and it's another wonderful blurring of the moral lines in this movie. Similarly, his wheelbike vehicle moves very much like an animal when its legs are deployed, so it's almost like a cyborg in its own right. The shuttle that he uses to travel to Utapau is an interesting design, presumably intended to evoke the beautiful Lambda-class shuttles that the Empire will use in the future. But the thing that struck me about it is the oversized dorsal fin sticking out of a relatively small ship body. To me, it looks like a teeny little shark trying to scare people with a huge mismatched fin, which suggests that Grievous looks more dangerous than he actually is. Final note about Utapau, though. It's a sinkhole-themed planet with architecture made of huge bones. Put another way, it's a grave which makes it a terribly ominous setting both for Obi-Wan and Grievous' duel and also for the clone's betrayal. Okay, as the last thing before I get to the standard closing sections, we've got to talk about something. Does it seem to anybody else like Obi-Wan Kenobi, Jedi Master, Hero of the Republic, protagonist of the prequels, is like a huge anti-droid racist? I talked about this a little in the Attack of the Clones episode, that Kenobi thinks of droids as deadly enemies that are only held in check by their profound limitations, much like the Trump administration. But there's a bunch more evidence in this film. First is his comment during the space battle that flying is for droids, which is him dismissing flying as being beneath him. There's also the bit of dialogue with Anakin, where Obi-Wan is about to say something about R2, and Anakin interrupts him to say, no loose wire jokes, please. 
suggesting that Kenobi regularly disparages this droid that is both important to his best friend and, you know, actually saved his life on at least one occasion. Finally, there's the fact that Obi-Wan has apparently been working with his own astromech, R4, who appeared in Episode 2, for at least the entire three-year span of the Clone Wars, and obviously knows R2 well enough to have standard jokes about him. But in A New Hope, he's going to claim, I don't seem to recall owning any droids. And he says this directly in front of R2, which is a pretty aggressively shitty thing to do. It's not like he needs to signal to R2 to play dumb about their previous relationship, because R2 can't actually talk in a way Luke understands. I'll also take this opportunity to register that I hate R2 knowing every single thing that happened in the prequels, and also being able to fly. On to intertextual points. Obviously, the last 15 minutes or so of the movie are just intertextual points, as Lucas busily connects the end of the prequels to the beginning of the original trilogy, so I'm going to gloss over all that. One reference that I didn't catch the first couple of times, but really enjoy now, is when the Jedi are facing off against Count Dooku, and Obi-Wan says, This time we will do it together. A direct reference to how Anakin cost them the victory last movie by rushing in like a fool. Anakin acknowledges fault by answering, I was about to say that. It's one more bit of evidence that our heroes are on the same page in the early part of the film. It is, unfortunately, reliant on the idea that they haven't fought Dooku since Attack of the Clones, so it's undercut quite a bit by the fact that over the course of the Clone Wars cartoon they fought him several times, I believe both separately and together. Okay, I ranted about this once in the Chipper's Discord room, but it's time to talk about it in the show proper, because this one issue is my single biggest gripe with all the prequels. Literally everything else I can work with, but Revenge of the Sith's failure to match up to Luke and Leia's conversation in Return of the Jedi is completely unforgivable. To recap, Luke, about to tell Leia about their sibling relationship, asks her if she remembered her mother, her real mother. Leia tells us not much, that her mother died when she was very young, but she remembers images of her beautiful but sad mother. Given that, and the fact that Luke makes a point of saying, you're a real mother, I discovered a whole new emotion that is a combination of bafflement and rage that Lucas has Padme die on camera when baby Leia is all of a minute old. You told us this, George. Why isn't it true? And it didn't need to be this way. Padme could have survived episode three and gone to live on Alderaan. She and Obi-Wan could have had an argument about whether it was better to keep the twins together or separate and he could have persuaded her. And we, the audience, would have just filled in that Padme died when Leia was little because Leia told us so, and obviously the Organist took her in afterward. Easy. Oh, and it particularly sucks that Lucas does all this damage to his own timeline so that Padme motherfucking Amidala can have lost her will to live. Bullshit. She is the one superpower that this kind of genre storytelling fairly consistently affords women, which is an iron will, often coupled with leadership skills so she can inspire the real, read male, heroes to be more heroic. Obviously I'm ranting now, but it really is just an unconscionably bad choice on Lucas's part to no real benefit. After that bracing segment, let's move on to my favorite part. For me, the best bit of this mostly good movie is the end of Act 1, with Anakin's virtuoso performance landing half a ship, followed by the wonderful scene of him and Obi-Wan sharing a nice, loving moment before everything falls apart. I like that Anakin gets one final chance to be an unambiguous hero, and specifically as a pilot, his original heroic skill set. The franchise to this point has done a marvelous job of convincing me that Anakin Skywalker is probably the only being in the galaxy who could have pulled off this particular bit of heroism, and that's exactly what we need to cement the tragedy of his fall. And the scene with Obi-Wan is a great bit of banter showing these two great friends and their mutual love and respect. And those are my thoughts about metaphors in Revenge of the Sith, but I'd love to hear yours. Talk to me on Twitter at rhyrit, or if you're a Chipper's patron, you can chat with me and the other Chipper's hosts on our Discord room. If you're not a Chipper's patron, you can rectify that at patreon.com chipperish. Thanks for listening, and metaphors be with you.